Growing up during the holidays at Christmas time, we would go to West Texas, where my grandparents lived or lived at the time. And it was a long drive on Interstate 20, 19, 20 hours, two-day drive, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of detail that you could see along the way, but mostly pine trees between here and uh, East Texas. Uh, but lots of, uh, you know, stops at, you know, gas stations and restaurants. So lots of detail, lots of conversations. But some years, for whatever reason, maybe we just had less time, we would fly. And it was a lot quicker. But it was, the vantage point was a lot, you know, it was a very different vantage point at 30,000 feet. You're seeing not as much detail, you're seeing a lot more topography. You're seeing a lot more of the, the changing the land as you go from, from the, the thicket of East Texas into more the uh, almost desert-like West Texas ground, and the covering was just different. Very different vantage point. I think that's an appropriate image here because what we're doing in this series called Birth Story, looking at the birth of Jesus, is looking at his birth from different vantage points. And the one that we're doing today is a very unique one because most of the time when we hear the story, the birth story of Jesus, we think of Mary, don't we? Uh, we, The songs that we sing, a lot of them revolve around Mary, but there aren't a lot of songs around Joseph. And so this morning, it's a little bit distinctive and different because we're looking at the birth story from the vantage point of Joseph and what it is that he goes through, what is it that he faces. And I think that's good for us this morning to have a different spotlight. And one of the things that maybe you're thinking about, in fact, uh, Greg and I were doing our time of prayer that we uh, invite the church family to do at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and he said to me, wow, what a, I can't wait to hear what you're going to have to say about Joseph because what a, what a unique character, the decisions that he made. And uh, Greg was mentioning just kind of the moral outstanding character of Joseph here. And that's good, and, and, and there is a lot in here for us. There is a moral lesson in here but there's a bigger vantage point than just a moral lesson here, and that is God's story. Not just Joseph's story, but what God does with the story of Joseph here. And there's a message for us. It's the message of Christmas, certainly, but it's a message that we need here, and it's a story of salvation. And here's what, in particular, I want you to see about a very, well, at least a story that we're pretty familiar with, but perhaps you've never thought about in this way. God came to cover shame at Christmas time. It's the covering of shame. It's in the story of Joseph, but it's also in the story, the ultimate story of God's salvation for humanity. So my prayer for us is that we'll all have ears to hear and see what is it that both Joseph did, but also ultimately what is it that God does to cover shame. We live in a land today here in the West that knows something about shame. And we think of shame cultures as cultures that are more to the east of the West, But the reality is we know how to shame people quite well here in the West. It's called social media, right? We do it with public figures. We also do it with those who are not public figures. It's called cyberbullying, right? We we know how to do these things. We've seen it done. We are also a shame culture. And so the question at Christmas for us is how does God speak into our culture about shame? And the answer is the birth story of Jesus. So three things this morning I want us to see. Number one. I want to see the courage of a husband. Second, I want to see the plan of a father. And then lastly, the strength of a son. Courage of a husband, the plan of a father, and the strength of a son. First, the courage. Look at verse 18 with me again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Betrothal is a little bit like today's engagement. It's a little bit different, though. 
Whereas with engagement, if a couple said, we're just going to call it off, call the whole thing off. Well, there aren't legal ramifications for that. Certainly there are emotional, massive ramifications for that. If you've ever been through that or know someone that has been through that. But legally there's not. But with betrothal, there was. Betrothal is more like marriage today where you could be betrothed, and in order to break off a betrothal, you had to legally divorce yourself from that person. So you can see how that relates more like marriage. And basically what betrothal was, was basically you're married without the consummation. You're married without living together. You're still living with mom and dad for up to a year's time in some instances. And then you move in, you consummate that marriage. That's what betrothal was. Now imagine you're 14 years old. You're a young woman. Your name is Mary. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord shows up on your doorstep and says, hey, I got good news for you. You're pregnant, right? Not exactly the good news you're thinking of, not exactly the good news that, that you're wanting. Your, your whole world is in front of you now. Now, again, we're not focusing as much on Mary, but I want you to really feel that with me this morning. I want you to, to experience what would it be like to be a 14-year-old teenage girl and find out you have a teen pregnancy that you now have to deal with. That's what Mary's having to deal with, and that's important because she isn't part of a shame culture, right? She's part of a culture that, they, that, that as hard as it is today to be a teenager and be pregnant, imagine what it'd be like 2,000 years ago in a culture that's incredibly conservative, incredibly traditional, and you find out that you're pregnant, right? And, and in fact, in fact, I mean, the whispers would have been flying. In fact, it wouldn't have been just whispers. It would have been a roar at some point because she would have started to show at roughly three or four months. And, and the villagers would have said, adultery. Adultery. That's what's happened here. And I'm like, I mean, can you imagine? Here? No, 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 you don't understand. It was immaculate conception. Uh, yeah, who's ever heard of that? Right? You know, like, it's adultery, Mary. Or, what's going on here? Right? This, is what, this is Mary's world. And so at the very least, she would have been shunned. Now, we know from John's gospel, there's a case where a woman, they attempted to stone her to death. And even on rare occasions, you'll hear about that today in some places in the Middle East. And so at the very least, she would have been shunned. And, and so for Mary, she would have spent a whole life unable to marry again or to be betrothed again because of what happened. In that culture, because of shame, she never would have had an opportunity to remarry, which meant basically a living death sentence for her because there were no means for an unmarried woman to care for herself. That's what's at stake here in this traditional Christmas story that we take for granted, Mary's perspective. But as I said, really what I want to do is talk about Joseph. What is Joseph going to do? Can you imagine now... Okay, maybe some of you are younger, you're guys, you're thinking, no, no, I don't, I don't know what it would be like to be Mary. But imagine yourself now, you're 17 years old, that's probably roughly what Joseph was. And Mary shows up at your doorstep. Remember, you don't live together yet. And you say, hey, Joseph, I want to let you know I'm pregnant and you're not the father. What would you be feeling? You know what you're feeling. The answer is shame. Right? I mean, you're not the father. She went outside the bounds of your commitment to someone else who was able to provide for her. That's what you're thinking. Because remember, your vantage point is only what you know. You're not thinking immaculate conception. You're thinking adultery. 
Mary has been unfaithful to me after all. And that Zoom lens is focused on you now in your shame. Brene Brown, in a book called The Gift of Imperfection, she talks about that Zoom lens. She says, shame works like the Zoom lens on a camera. When we are feeling shame, the camera is zoomed in tight, and all we see is our flawed selves alone and struggling. Ever been there before? Ever been in a place where, man, it feels like there's a spotlight on you right now? Last Monday night, so some of you know I play on an over-40 soccer team in a league, and, and we, we had a rare penalty shootout. And I'd actually played a pretty good game. I'd tr- scored a couple goals and I play a striker position. But we had a rare opportunity to advance to a higher league by winning this game, and it was tied 4-4 at the end of the game. And so we went into a penalty shootout. And so our coach said, we need five of you uh, to take the shot. And I was like, count me in, right? And so I took my shot, and there were five of us, and four of us made the shot. One of us didn't, and you're looking at the one who missed his shot. And the reason why that's so important is the other team made all five of their shots. So the deciding goal, the difference, came down to me missing the shot. And let me tell you, it felt like everyone on the sidelines was watching me as I walked off the field missing my shot. I mean, it felt like the whole world was, was zoomed in on me. I felt, like, I felt the eyes just like boring holes in my head from my teammates. Now, maybe they weren't, but that's what it felt like. That's what shame does. By the way, I've since recovered from that moment. But the trauma of that, we've all been there, right? Sports, athletics, um, talent shows, academics. We've all been there before. Shame is a very present presence with us, isn't it? And so I I think that, that when you think about it that way, you can begin to understand a little bit what Joseph was experiencing. This is that moment in the movie when the hero of the story is faced with a crisis. Every you know this, that, that in every great epic story that makes the silver screen, there's that moment where the hero on the journey, it's Frodo, it's, it's another character that you're thinking of. And the question is, what will they do during their crisis moment? Joseph's in the same place. What will Joseph do? Will he, will he throw her under the bus, so to speak? Wasn't me, it was her. Clearly, I had nothing to do with this. She's been unfaithful. Will he choose to ignore it instead? Well, he's like, man, this is so, so I just want to crawl under a rock right now. I just don't even think about this, right? I'm just going to look the other way. We're told in verse 19, look at Joseph's response. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is a remarkable verse. Because we learn two things about the character of Joseph. Number one, he's just. And what that meant in in, in traditional Jewish society was that he was a righteous man, which meant that, that he was faithful to the law. And so he couldn't simply look the other way regarding the unfaithfulness, or so what it would seem, of Mary. He, he couldn't just pretend as if it didn't matter. And according to Jewish law, 
Faithfulness to the law meant that he had to divorce her. It wasn't as optional as it is today. He, he, had, to, he had to divorce her. But look how he does it. He's, it says he will do so quietly. This man is more than just, he's also merciful. He is just and merciful. This man is incredibly common. He was an incredibly common man in the common village, but the valor, his courage is uncommon. The decisions that he makes that day are very unusual. Most of you are involved with our DNA groups, our small groups here at City Church, and, and most of you are towards the tail end of the Wellspring curriculum that we've been doing. And the Wellspring curriculum, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, part of what it does, it's basically a Bible study looking at different parts of Scripture and how Jesus would respond to people in his life as well as other characters, so that we might learn how we can be disciples. And there's that passage in, in Luke's gospel, if you remember earlier in the series, in the curriculum, where Jesus is confronted by a woman of ill repute, probably a prostitute, maybe she was unfaithful, supposedly looked like Mary. And, and so how will Jesus respond to her? And you remember that the religious leaders are not compassionate, they're not merciful, they're self-righteous, they want to cast the first stone, so to speak. They want to publicly shame her, and they do that. But what does Jesus do? Jesus covers her shame. Jesus restores her to fellowship. The one that you would not have expected in that traditional society to be restored is restored by Jesus. Jesus confronts the righteous religious self-righteous religious establishment, instead covers her shame. And you know the whole point of that curriculum is designed to help us learn how do we do that with each other. But it is infinitely easier to cover the shame of someone in your small group if it didn't involve you. And for Joseph, it does involve him. He's the one who's been humiliated by Mary. And what does he do? He does the opposite of what we do in our culture. What are, we, what, are we, what are we at least tempted to do when someone has humiliated us? Isn't it fight or flight, the amygdala hijack, right? As we were talking about earlier. I mean, it is so tempting. And as I mentioned, we are so good publicly and otherwise of, of ratcheting up other people's shame. But Joseph wants to go a different way. And, and, so, and so as he's, he's considering how to be just but also uh, merciful, how to be moral without being moralistic is what I'm saying. An angel of the Lord shows up, Gabriel. And he says, I, I have a different plan for you. More on that here in a second. But Joseph, look at what he does next. Given the crisis moment that he's in, here's what we're told he does in verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. So in a crisis moment, in this daunting challenge of courage and valor, what does Joseph choose to do? He chooses to listen to the Father and allow himself to be publicly humiliated further. Don't you see that's what happened? So when he's already experiencing shame, when Mary comes to him and says, you're not the Father, now, in light of his circumstances, in light of what the angel of the Lord has said, now he's saying, all right, I'm willing to be humiliated further. Because can you imagine, again, Joseph and Mary going, no, no, you don't understand immaculate conception, right? Villagers, please, you need to understand. No, what are they thinking? They're thinking either she was unfaithful or Joseph got going a little too early. 
And, and, and Joseph now is trying to cover with this whole story, this whole false narrative, fake news about immaculate conception. Right? And so the shame, the public humiliation, is being further heaped upon him by his choice to be faithful to the angel of the Lord. That's courage defined, you see. And he chooses to adopt Joseph or Jesus, this adoptive love of a father. And so is there a moral lesson here? Absolutely there is. There's something about the character of a disciple that's being put on display here. One who listens to the father despite the circumstances. The one, the one who chooses to be both righteous but also compassionate and merciful. But if we stop there, we would not see what else is going on here that's even more significant. And so secondly here, the plan of a father on display. Look now back with me at verse 20. But as he considered these things, that is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on here is that we're told Joseph is considering his plan. Joseph has made his plan based upon the information. He sees what he sees, and based upon that, he's made his decisions, right? But then the father, through the angel, says, no, I have a different plan for you. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. We saw this in verse 22 and verse 23. We'll look at that here in a second. But there's this prophecy given. It's from Isaiah chapter 7. It's the one that really makes this passage so famous. The virgin shall conceive and be with child and shall call him Emmanuel. Now, what's that about? Now, this is where uh, I'm going to do this very quickly here for the sake of time. But this is a double prophecy. Here's what that means. It means that Matthew was looking at what was said by prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, a virgin shall conceive, and he's saying, I get it now. Yes, Mary the virgin, the immaculate conception. Okay, so that's what we always think about when it comes to Christmas time. The virgin shall conceive, that's Mary. Right, and it is. But there's another thing going on in here. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is dealing with a king, a king who also has his own plan. That king is called Ahaz, and Ahaz is dealing with an outside power that wants to destroy Israel, and he's developed a plan, and here's that plan. The plan is, I'm going to build an alliance with Assyria, this other kingdom that's kind of an up-and-coming power, and together we're going to keep Israel safe from this other mortal enemy, you follow. And the prophet Isaiah says, no, 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 you don't need your own plan here. I have a better plan for you. And as a sign of my being present with you, me going with you, King Ahaz, and this is where commentators are not quite sure what's going on. It's a little bit murky. There's actually a prophecy that's being fulfilled in the time of Ahaz. In Isaiah's time, a virgin shall conceive. Now, we don't know the details of that, but there's a sign given as a sign of encouragement. Here's the point. Matthew is telling us that as a sign of encouragement here, God, through the angel Gabriel, is saying to, Matthew, to Joseph, Joseph, I've got this. I've got a better plan for you than the plan that you have come up with here. And so I want you to see two things regarding this point here. Number one, I want you to see the character of a father on display. He is sovereign. He's the high king of heaven. He's the high king of earth. He's the high king of the universe. And when he sets his plans into motion, what Matthew's telling is his plan will not be thwarted. Proverbs 21.30 puts it this way, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. I could have given you multiple different passages as well. 
He is saying that when, when he puts things into motion, what's so distinctive about Christianity that's even different from other religions is that when you look at other religions and how their God operates or their gods operate, it's a lot more generic. It's a lot more murky in terms of what the future is going to look like, how it's all going to work out. But in Christianity, there's this plan, a very specific plan that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. God is saying, look, look, I've put myself on the line here. There's a prophecy, and there's multiple prophecies that were fulfilled at Christmas time with the birth of Jesus. God is putting himself in the dock, so to speak. He's putting himself there and saying, I better deliver for you. My whole character depends on me being faithful to what I've said I'm going to do. And that's what happens here at Christmas. And so the first thing I want you to see about that is that we have a God who has presented to us what faithfulness looks like. But that leads to a second thing here, and that is how will we respond to that? Look at verse 21 with me again, because I want you to see this through the lens again of Joseph, his vantage point. And so this is what the angel says. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, here is what is so interesting about that. For those of you who are parents, have you ever had anyone tell you what to name your child? If they did, you certainly ignored them. Maybe you said some choice words as well, right? I mean, who has the power? Who has the authority to name your child? You! Can you imagine if, if the government of Georgia, the state government, or the feds came to you and said, all right, here's what we want your child to be named, okay? This is what you would say, basically, hell no, right? You would say, there's not a snowball's chance in hell that's going to happen, right? Because you have authority. This is your child. What is the message here? Gabriel is saying, this is not your child. This is the Heavenly Father's child. It's his authority. The question is, how will Joseph respond to that? Joseph has a plan. He's considering his plan. It's his own form of salvation. What I mean by that is Joseph wants to get out of the fix that he's in, and so he's figured out how to do that. It's not God's plan, though. It's a form of self-salvation, we might say. The name Jesus literally means, we're told here right in this verse, it means he will save them from their, from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord saves. Joshua, the name we get from that, from the Hebrew, Jesus here. Yeshua, the Lord who saves. Jesus will live up to his name, and he will rescue us from our plans. Man, how many times in your life have you needed rescue from your own plans? For me, I, so some of you know this, I used to work for a man named Ravi Zacharias 20 years ago, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And when I, here's what I would literally tell people about my job there for four years. I so loved what I did that it felt like people were paying me to eat my favorite flavor of ice cream every day. I mean, it was just joy. Every day, I loved going into that office. I loved what I was doing, itinerant speaking, primarily evangelism and apologetics. And I loved, and I had no plans to ever leave there. I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing that. I loved it so much. And then I got downsized. Completely shocked. Didn't see it coming. After four years of working there, economic recession, I was one of those that were let go because of that. And you talk about shame, by the way. When the day that I found out that was happening, Kirsten knows this quite well. Just how it felt so, so shamed, and she covered me well during those times. But I digress. I thought to myself, what would my life look like if I was still there? I wouldn't be a pastor. 
last 20 years, that's what I've been doing, and God willing, for another 20. I mean, this is my life's calling, is to be a pastor of a church, to lead this church, to plant this church, and now to lead it. And it gives me great joy to do so. What, and I think, and so for some of you, you're thinking, yeah, I, I went to graduate school for this sort of degree program, and I'm not doing that now, thanks be to God. I'm doing something I actually was made for. Some of you are saying, man, I, I'm, I think about that person that I first dated. I'm so glad that I'm not married to them. Like, I, I could see that God was bringing me, and it was, I didn't see it. It, was, it wasn't a, a, a clear, uh, straight line between point A and point B. It was a bit of a zigzag getting to the Lord's will, but, but now I can see that God was protecting me, you see. Uh, all of us in here have stories where we can see that we had plans that God said, we need to set those plans aside. <laughs> I've got something better for you. And the question is, on the other side of that, will you trust me? Which leads to verse 23. Here's the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And we're told right after that parenthetical statement, which means what? God is with us. See, it isn't just that that he's a sovereign who says, I have a plan that I'm working out. Now, here's what we're going to do. Here's what's going to happen in your life, okay? He doesn't do that. He doesn't stay far away. He says, no, 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 God with us, Emmanuel. What is that incarnation? See, one of the things that's so profound about Christianity that I want you to really just marinate in right now is that that the Christian stories of God taking on flesh, God taking on flesh and living the life that we should have lived and then dying the death that we deserved, right? That is our gospel, as it were. And what is so profound about Christianity is that God, who is Lord of the heavens, high king of heaven and earth, would choose to come down in the form of a common man in order to help us fulfill the destiny that God has for you and me. It is a profound story that we get so used to talking about, sometimes especially at Christmas, and yet the question is, do we actually trust that story? Here's what I mean by that. I mean, I, feel, I felt this yesterday. I, I, you probably felt it yesterday too. You probably feel it most days of the week, if, you're, if you think about it. And that, is, and that is, do I trust God with fill in the blank, with his plan? In my marriage, that maybe, maybe the Lord did bring me to this person, but it's not working out the way that I thought it would. Or, or the career. Yeah, maybe the Lord brought me to that career, but... But, but why, why did I lose my job? Or, or why, why was I overlooked for the raise? Yeah, maybe they brought me to this dating relationship, but, but why do I feel so unfulfilled? Maybe we could go on and on and on. The question is Emmanuel. We say, oh, I know that Jesus saves. I know that's the, the heart of my faith, right? I, I believe that I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus saved me from my sin. But the question is, do you also believe he's Emmanuel? That he's gonna, he wants to walk with you through your crisis, through your daunting challenge that requires tremendous courage. And the question is, where will that courage come from? And the good news is that when we lack the courage, he sent the Son. Which brings us to the last thing here. See, we don't need salvation through a vaccine. Okay? As important as, as that's going to be for us here in the next few months, we don't need political salvation from a certain candidate. Oh, if we just had that person in office, life would be so much better. That's fool's gold, friends. The vaccine is also 
fool's gold if we think that's all that we need. I mean, I've said this in here before, the trauma that the pandemic has caused will last long after the vaccine arrives. You know that, don't you? You need to know that. And so what is it that we ultimately need for ultimate times? And the answer is the strength of a son. And it's Jesus. I want you to think for a second, what's in a name? We just said it, Jesus, the one who will save from sins. Here's a common name. By the way, Jesus was sort of like David, (laughs) Matthew, Luke. It's a very common name. Everyone was naming their child Jesus, but Jesus Christ was the only one who actually lived up to his name. A common name, an uncommon result, mind you. And how did he fulfill his name? Well, think about the Joseph story. What did we say about Joseph a second ago? What did Joseph do? Joseph listened to his father, his heavenly father, and took on Mary's shame. He allowed himself to be publicly humiliated in order to cover her shame. But you see, that was only temporary. It was was only a temporary fix. By listening to the Father, it was only temporary what he could do. But you see, Jesus does the ultimate covering of shame. At the cross, he took on our shame. He took on our sin. And it wasn't just for one person. It wasn't temporary. It was for all of us who would believe into him for all time, for eternity. Who was he? One who was just. Remember Joseph, just and merciful. But Jesus was truly and ultimately just and righteous and truly and ultimately merciful and compassionate at the same time. Don't you see? He's the greater Joseph, if if you will. He's the one who did it perfectly for all of us. That's why in Hebrews 12, too, it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does Jesus do at the cross? He despises the shame. The very same shame that tends to undo us, that tends to mute our voices, to mute our testimony, to mute us. What does Jesus do with that? Having been humiliated himself, Jesus scorns it. Why? Because he's victorious over it, you see. We talk about name the shame. Take away the power of shame by naming it. And that's a wonderful device of how we can live our lives, yes. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just name it, he destroys it, you see. And he says, where, O death, is thy sting? Shame can feel like a living death, can't it? And Jesus is the one who takes that away. He is Emmanuel. And so here's where I end. The question I have for you is, do you trust that Jesus was also Emmanuel? And then in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing, the shame, the crisis, the scandal, whatever it might be, the loneliness, the heartache here at Christmas time, maybe especially this year, how does Jesus want to be present with you in your crisis? Because I'm telling you today, he wants to be there. Believe me when I say this, I've had to preach this message to myself this week. I've needed this as your pastor. I, I literally can remember a point in the preparation of this where I've needed that and I've heard the words of life spoken over me as I put these words together for you. And my guess is you're no different from me. And so may you be blessed at Christmas. May you know that your shame, that your guilt, your brokenness, your sin has been covered and that he knows your true name. Son, daughter, 
of the King, loved, beloved by the Father. Let's pray. Father, we need these words, and we need to surrender to you as a disciple, Lord, with our crises, with our, with our challenges. They're daunting at times. We are still in a dark winter. We will be, even with the pandemic. But, but Lord, the pandemic will once lift, and, and yet there will be other pandemics. Pandemics have nothing to do with epidemiology. There will be other diseases that impact our marriages, our careers, our souls, our well-being. Will, be, will we be able to say with the hymn writer, it is well with my soul. Jesus, you alone had the strength to scorn shame and to defeat it at the cross. And so we look to that power, we look to that strength as the ultimate thing that we need. So Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, come incarnate with us this Christmas season at City Church and beyond. We pray this in the name of Emmanuel himself. Amen.